I think when you're a African-American uh, person or black as I am, or even a female, um, there's a saying is you kind of get in where you fit in, right? And so I, I think when you're a white male, you don't have to read the room as well because the world is your oyster. I mean, that you just belong, period, full stop. I think when you're a person of color or uh, you're a female, I think you have to figure out like where you fit in and adapt to your circumstances a lot more because you don't come fully accepted in your roles professionally. So you have to figure out how you fit in. From Foundation Capital, this is B2B as CEO, the show about how to scale your enterprise startup and how to grow from founder to CEO. I'm Ashu Gard, general partner at Foundation Capital. My guest is Ralph Clark, the president and CEO of ShopSpotter. Ralph has more than 30 years of experience in corporate finance and organizational leadership roles at IBM, Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, and several successful tech startups. On this episode, I asked Ralph about ShopSpotter's unique business and mission to help police departments reduce gun violence and make our communities safer. But we spend most of the podcast discussing something of profound importance to our industry and our country, and myself and my firm, the topic of how to confront bias and systemic racism. Ralph, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Perhaps we can start a little bit by, by having you talk about your background and your personal story. Sure. I'm a native of Oakland, California, uh, born and raised, um, was raised by a, a single mom for a number of years and had the good fortune to go to Catholic schools through elementary and high school before uh, going to uh, UOP, uh, University of the Pacific in Stockton, California. Um, I had my first professional job in IBM in sales, uh, selling uh, mainframe to the Boeing account. Uh, I was a large systems sales rep. And I did that for a number of years, got a couple of promotions at IBM and ended up going to a business school. And then uh, post business school, spent some time on Wall Street as an investment banker before uh, moving back to the Bay Area to pursue my passions around kind of technology and finance together and helping uh, young companies grow and scale. Rob, I'd love to sort of you talk a little bit about the your most recent stint. I mean, you've been at Shotspotter for 10 years. So tell us a little bit about the story of the company, how it came about. So the, the company was founded about 20 years ago by Dr. Bob Schoen, who had been a, uh, he's a brilliant mathematician and engineer who had been doing some work at Stanford Research Institute. He's actually known as the father of epicenter of things. So using math to uh, pinpoint the epicenters of things like earthquakes, Soviet Union missile testing and the like. In addition to being quite a brilliant mathematician engineer, he's also an incredibly, uh, I would say, beautiful human being that became concerned about a local gun violence issue here in Silicon Valley in a place called Redwood City. And he had the notion that he could apply these same uh, math principles acoustically to be able to identify. And Ralph, I'm going to interrupt for a second. Yes. You said gun violence in Redwood City. Yes. Uh, I live I'm literally 50 yards from Redwood City. I never think of Redwood City as being... a an epicenter of gun violence. So I'm curious a little bit. Yeah, I mean, so uh, a lot has changed in the Bay Area, I guess. 
Yeah, well, I think, yeah, certainly it's true. It's probably, it wasn't the, the most violent place in the United States with respect to gun violence, but it was enough of a violence problem that it spurred Dr. Bob Schoen to at least have the notion that, hey, look, maybe I could be helpful if I could apply these math principles acoustically to help police identify and then be in a better position to respond to gun violence. Now, you raise a very interesting point because this is something that uh, we're up against all the time here. And this is what makes my work, I feel, so important and meaningful is that I think our perception of gun violence tends to be uh, very narrow, too narrow and too specific because we tend to associate gun violence equals homicides. But in fact, what we know from our work is gun violence is a lot bigger than homicide. So guns are probably fired 100 to 125 times for every single homicide. In the vast majority of those instances, it goes unreported to law enforcement. So 80 to 90 percent of gun violence goes unreported. So I think if you're not living right in that epicenter of that at-risk, underserved community, you're probably a lot less familiar with the extent of gun violence happens. Uh, but in fact, it does happen. And so coming back to the company, so ShotSpotter had been in existence for 10 years. It sounded like they'd built some technology when you joined the company. Where was it when you joined? And Sure. So they built this brilliant technology. They actually had deployed it and professionalized the company where they had about 20 or so deployments to an uh, early adopter police agency. So these are well-resourced, very sophisticated police agencies that uh, actually reminded me of my days uh, at IBM on the Boeing team, where they would almost have like a technology group set up within a police department to be able to acquire all manner of technology and not have to have any kind of uh, return on investment case for that. They were early adopters in every sense. And not only that, they were early adopters on a legacy uh, business model. So, you know, CapEx, high price, where the agency would take responsibility for owning the infrastructure. And for our system to be able to do what it does, it requires the deployment of sensors, the building out of proprietary networks, and then this sophisticated software that we would basically stand up on a server inside of a customer premise that could do the time stamping from these multiple sensors to detect and locate gunfire. So it was really um, just the purview of very few police departments that could afford not only the high price, but also the amount of technical competence to be able to take this on. And what I saw when I came to the company was an incredible technology that hadn't quite figured out how to cross the chasm to be relevant to more of the unwashed masses of police departments that probably had a much bigger need for this technology solution than maybe the technology department of Boston PD or the technology department of San Francisco where we had uh, been deployed. So how did you go about changing it? So um, first I had to test the thesis. So um, I'd actually been talking to the company for a couple months before uh, joining it because um, I met Dr. Bob at the time we had just sold um, Guardian Edge to Symantec when I was approached to become the CEO of ShotSpotter. I said, well, you know, I'm, I live in Oakland. I'm familiar with gun violence. I know some people in Oakland PD. Let me just go talk to the company. I, I didn't think at the time I was actually even going to go back to work, but I came down and met Dr. Bob. And the thing that immediately drew me to him was just, again, his compassion and his humanness around wanting to solve this particular problem. And I said, look, I, you guys have a really tough time here because I can immediately see that at $250,000 a square mile, like you're not going to get really beyond the 20 or so customers that you've had employed at that kind of price point. 
So it, did, it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. But I love Dr. Bob. So I would literally come down like, you know, once a week for a day. Then it started a couple times a week getting to know the customers, the employees and doing a lot of research. And after about two months of this, I developed the thesis that if the board and investors would be willing to support a fairly radical business model pivot where we can bet on the long term and like convert this thing from a legacy business model to a SaaS delivered lower price point subscription based business model, we can overcome the you know technical challenges that you know smaller agencies would have along with the financial challenges and then we would lock them in and if we were willing to bet that we can own that uh, revenue stream for 10 years, we would ultimately make up for our investment in the infrastructure to bring about the solution. So the board and investors decided to back that vision. And so we kind of started on the path of converting the business from this, you know, CapEx premise-based high price point solution targeted toward early adopters to more of a modern, lower cost, easy to subscribe to uh, service selling value to the basically unwashed masses of police departments that had a real gun violence issue. So we started selling solutions and listening to the customer more around their challenges of dealing with ongoing persistent gun violence. Again, you can't support a community and not show up to 80 to 90% of gunfire incidents. And that's the thing that we're solving effectively. Hi, I'm Aparna Dinerkin. I'm co-founder of Arise AI. Hope you don't mind if I interrupt this episode to tell you a little bit about my company. Arise is a machine learning observability platform. With the adoption of AI ML at an all-time high, it's more important than ever to understand how this technology is affecting your business. When models are deployed in production, we lose all sight of how they're actually performing. Even the engineers who built them couldn't tell you why they're buggy or not doing what they're supposed to do. Arise is here to help. By providing real-time analytics and observability, the Arise platform helps your team determine when, why, and how your models are performing. We empower engineers to fix models with explainable analysis and catch upstream engineering issues. So if your team is fed up with the hours spent troubleshooting and debugging your models, you don't have to keep just hoping for the best. You can Arise. If you think about sort of the, as we talk about inclusion today and we talk about sort of some of the challenges, one of the issues that constantly keeps coming up is how do we find a way to give more people breaks early in their career and, and have, you know, the opportunities at the, at the right time. And what I find remarkable about your background and your life story is IBM in the, in the 80s was the bluest of blue chip companies. You were early to tech, early to a blue chip company. You went on to work at Boeing, Lotus, Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch. It's a remarkable series of breaks early on. Curious, you know, if there's any lessons from those experiences in terms of how you got those that would be more relevant in today's time. I just understand that being black in this country, uh, this is always something that was instilled in me even at a young age is that you know, you have to work twice as hard to get half as far. And I've been very successful, but there's no doubt in my mind that I could probably have been even more successful if I did not have to deal with issues of systemic racism. You know, I've talked publicly about things that I have to worry about. Other folks just, you wouldn't have to worry about when you live in a world 
where you don't have to figure out where you fit in. Uh, you just are. You just show up and you're there. And um, I see it in how we have to raise our son. You know, I talked uh, publicly about um, he was fortunate enough to go to a really nice school in Oakland. And he wanted at 10 years old, he wanted to go TP some houses with his with his friends. And we had to tell him you can't TP your houses with your friends because, you know, if you TP the wrong house and someone comes out, they're not going to see the other three kids or four kids that you're with. They're going to see you. And that could be a problem. And so we've had to talk with him about, you know, uh, as he's starting to drive or we will soon be driving about, hey, getting pulled over and what that means when you have encounters with the police is something I have to practice all the time. It is an issue, but I think what I'm feeling super optimistic about these days is, and I, and I think a lot of it has to do with the uh, pandemic in that I think the pandemic happening prior to the George Floyd incident, I think made uh, the majority, the white majority, I would say, feel a lot more vulnerable, just that just dealing with the pandemic. And I think in that state of vulnerability, they could see that George Floyd situation in a very different way than probably they would have seen it if they didn't have the pandemic that we we're all experiencing, right? And then that awakening is really encouraging to me because like now what I'm sensing is that people are much more open around recognizing white privilege and institutional racism, which is the inverse of white privilege. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. And I think we're seeing uh, some powerful moments where uh, we're seeing allies come into this discussion that want to dismantle it, you know, accept it for what it is and dismantle it. But it is a it is a real issue. I mean, folks that you interview, I guess if you go down, you know, the top tech companies here in Silicon Valley, how many black board members do they have? Too few. How many how many black CEOs? Not many. I think I'm only aware of two black CEOs that have taken companies public. And I'm like representing 50% of the whole market. I mean, that's just that's ridiculous. That doesn't make any sense to me. Given your experience across five different, five or six different startups, actually, in various roles, and CEO in most of them, your experience in venture, I'd love to get your perspective on the current discussions around inclusion, diversity. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs, uh, especially at startups, who, who are you know, working through this question for themselves? And what advice do you have for, for venture investors like myself and Sang? One of the powerful things I think about our community here in Silicon Valley is that, you know, pattern recognition is good in many respects. It's like, okay, you see cloud is successful. I want more of that. Storage industry, you know, storage industry booming. I want more of that. I think there's pattern recognition around how you think about building out teams, senior leadership teams. It's like, white male leadership and, uh, you know, okay, I'll, I'll maybe get a little bit more uh, color with respect to the technical world. But I mean, we're not focusing in on, from my point of view, a large contingent of talent, African American talent that sits out there because your pattern recognition doesn't allow you to do that. So you asked me, what is it that they could do to be more successful? It's like, throw out your pattern recognizer, do things that might take you out of your comfort zone a little bit because uh, you're continuing to do the same thing over and over again, just kind of perpetuates the institutional bias that exists. I had an incident once, this was in the 90s. I, I mean, this was actually uh, something I'll never forget, but I 
I happened to show up at a law, a very well-known, well-regarded law firm, uh, and I was actually meeting with one of the managing partners of this particular law firm that is a friend and a mentor to me. And I kind of showed up maybe the way I'm looking right now, and I was sitting in the lobby. And another partner from the firm that I'd met before was a little bit frustrated. I guess he had a package to go out or whatever. And he had this package and I was just sitting in the lobby going to see the main managing partner for this firm. I mean, I was going to see the guy, right? And this other partner literally took this UPS envelope and I mean, boom, I mean, like threw it at me. It, like he thought I was a UPS delivery person or the delivery person there to go take his package. And I think the receptionist there in law firm, I mean, she knew who I was going to see. I mean, and you just could see the look on her first, like, oh, my. I was like, dude, do you know, like, who this guy is going to see? He's going to go see the managing partner of this firm. But it's just like, those are the types of things. The guy just made an assumption about I was his delivery person. He could not see me actually having a meeting with the managing partner, who is a friend of mine, by the way. I mean, there's that. I mean, I get a lot. It's like no big deal as a part of the IPO roadshow. And mind you, I had a lot of experience taking companies uh, public um, when I was at Goldman and Merrill. So I'm now kind of showing up as a principal, as a CEO. And uh, my, my dear friend and colleague, who's a CFO and a business school classmate of mine, Alan Stewart, great guy, U.S. Naval Academy guy. And we were section mates at Harvard Business School. I mean, I mean, not every time, but there was probably 20% of the time People, they would know the name for Ralph Clark CEO. They would come up and introduce themselves to, to Alan and says, oh, you must be Ralph. No, actually, he's Ralph. He's, he's Ralph. You know, that, that, that kind of stuff. But, you know, for me, I, <laughs> that's, those are microaggressions. Like, I don't, I don't let them take, that's not going to take me off my game. You know, I mean, you can let that burn you up. You can let that completely distract you. I'm a person on a mission. And I said, that's, that's noise uh, to me. And uh, I just keep moving forward. I know that it's there. I choose not to be a victim. But at the same time, I can recognize being victimized. I don't know if that resonates with you at all. But I think sometimes, you know, you get victimized to the point where you all of a sudden become a victim. Yep. And then you lose power. I'm not going to lose power that way. But then I'm not going to be a person that like there are some people that will refuse to be a victim, but then they can't even acknowledge the victimization. I mean, there's, you know, there's some successful black folks, I think, have carried that thing where they're saying, oh, I'm not a victim. There's no institutional racism, this, that, and the other. It's like, okay, I'm, I don't know what planet you're living on exactly, but I, I feel you about not being a victim, but you have to acknowledge that there is a process of victimization. And it's a, it's a careful line that you have to walk and, you know, you do the best you can. One topic I want to come back to before we start to wrap up is, you know, you talked a fair bit about how your early experiences, whether it was at IBM right out of undergrad or at Goldman Sachs right after, out of business school really were formative experiences for you and helped you sort of deal with, and, and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but at least sort of as I was listening to that sort of, it really made a difference in terms of dealing with systemic bias and racism and gave you a platform to succeed. One of the things that I'm puzzled by is why that hasn't happened at scale. You know, 20 years later, you would think, you know, I mean, I don't know the exact stats, but you, you would expect that 5 or 10 or 15% of people entering Facebook or Google or Microsoft or any of the tech companies at the entry level come from, you know, disadvantaged minorities. And once you have that, over time, you would, you would see that, you know, 
more opportunities created at every level. But you don't see that at the entry level at all. What do you think, what you called an experiment 20 years ago, why do you think that experiment has, hasn't flourished or expanded over time? That's a great question. Um, I think if I really knew the answer to that, I'd be on a lot of talk shows and uh, I'd maybe get invited to the Daily Show or something. I don't, I don't know the answer. That's a, that's a really important question to get underneath. But I don't have a cogent answer for that. Now, I do believe maybe it has something to do, I'll offer an opinion perhaps, but um, I, I think, you know, like we have the concept of minimally uh, viable product. You know, you do just enough to get by. And so if you're given a certain amount of lip services up, you do just enough to get by. You're not like really embracing it as a strategic imperative, but you want to be doing just enough to be defensive, right? And that's certainly a lot more important probably to an IBM and then a Goldman Sachs just because of the scale and nature of their business with regulatory oversight, et cetera. It's like, hey, we can't show up like completely you know, necking on this particular issue. So we're going to, you know, sprinkle a little bit around here and that. We're not going to really fully embrace and internalize it. uh, Because again, I don't think that, um, I think it's very easy for people to say they're not racist. And I believe that to be the case. And so we have this bar that says, okay, are you racist? No, I'm not. No, I'm not racist. What's really interesting now, the language that we're using around racism is now like institutional racism, i.e. white privilege. Now, that's a really different thing because that makes it a lot more difficult for people to hide behind because I think people can legitimately say, I'm not a racist, but then I say, but you are the beneficiary of white privilege, right? That discussion is really different. Now, I think this notion of like, okay, white privilege, what does that mean? You know, it like showed up in Central Park in New York, right? Where this lady weaponized her whiteness uh, doing the wrong thing, not having her dog on a leash against a person that was calling her out. And she's basically saying, hey, you're black. You don't have the ability to call me out. Even though I'm doing the right thing, I have the ability to call the police on you. I mean, that is white privilege. Do I believe she's a racist? I think like the individual said there too, I, like, I don't know what's in her heart, but I can imagine that she doesn't consider herself to be a racist. And I can even make the view that maybe she isn't a racist. Did she leverage her white privilege? She absolutely did. So I think the conversation we're having now about racism being a part of white privilege and understanding what institutional white privilege means, I think is really important. And that's why I'm really encouraged around when I see people get behind Black Lives Matter is really interesting because that's an acknowledgement that there is this thing called white privilege. So I think like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I don't think we would have broad support around the notion of, I think that would be too scary for most people. But I think now people are like opened up to the idea of like, hey, there is this thing called uh, privilege, institutional racism, white privilege, if you will. And we've got to do all we can to dismantle it. And one of the ways we dismantle it is we say, hey, black lives do matter. Ralph, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure having you on B2B as CEO. No, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. That's it for this episode. You can find past episodes and subscribe to future ones on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. B2B as CEO is brought to you by Foundation Capital, an early-stage venture capital firm with 27 IPOs, including Netflix, Lending Club, TubeMogul, and Sunrun. I'm Arshu Gard, a general partner at Foundation Capital. I'm passionate about helping B2B entrepreneurs who are trying to solve hard problems. 
So if this podcast speaks to you, if you are interested in growing from a technical founder into a business leader, drop me a line. Thanks and see you next time.